Hey, today is Palm Sunday, and it's an exciting day. It's the you know, festive day when we remember and celebrate Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And the palm trees are flowing, the coats are on the blanket, and Jesus' crowd of raucous supporters are filling the airs with cries of praise. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a scandalous claim. One that immediately, as Mike read for us, immediately brought all kind of criticism onto Jesus. Everybody who heard it understood its political and revolutionary implications. According to that statement, the man who began his ministry by announcing the nearness of God's kingdom, behold, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The man who had exerted all kind of kingly authority, casting out demons and healing the sick and speaking words and teaching people in a way that compelled them to believe, and they were gripped by it so that they had to obey. This man now entered into Jerusalem to take his rightful place on his throne, to rule and reign as God's Messiah. But you know the end of the story, right? While the week begins with hope and joy and praise, it ends with Jesus breathing his last on a cross. Think about that. Think about maybe disappointments you've experienced in your own life. How gut-wrenching it must have been. The shout, blesses the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is replaced by a wooden sign, carefully, ironically prepared and nailed to the cross above Jesus' head. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The disciples who lead the way in joyful and triumphal procession scatter. They hide behind locked doors, afraid that the same Romans who killed Jesus are now going to get them. They head home, heads looking down at the ground, wishing, hoping, wondering what might have been. You know, the one man, he captures the sentiment they all must have felt. Went on the road to his home in Emmaus. He says, We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They'd announced his arrival. Blesses the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But with his death on the cross, they were sure it was all a dream. We thought he was the one, but clearly he wasn't. You see, in their theology, they had no place for a suffering Messiah. They had no room for a king who's crucified. And so, within their paradigm and their frame of reference, they assumed rightly that his death meant the end of their hope for a kingdom. But the story doesn't end there. Three days later, slain by death, the God of life, no grave could e'er contain him. Praise the Lord, he's alive, right? And they go to the tomb and they find it empty. Nothing there but some folded up grave clothes. A bunch of dusty, musty air. He's gone. Because Jesus was resurrected, they had to reassess some things. He spent 40 days with them, opening up the scriptures, explaining from the law and the prophets why the Messiah must suffer, and how everything that had happened to him had been promised and foretold from before them. 
Because of that, they came to see that the cross wasn't the end of God's activity through Jesus. It wasn't the end of their hopes of Messiah's reign. It wasn't the end their dream of living under God's rule and his kingdom. The cross was the pathway. It was the, it was the path Jesus took to glory. He had to wear the crown of thorns before he wore the crown of life. And so this morning, I want to show you why Jesus' unexpected death on the cross was the means by which he secured all of God's promised blessings for us. Uh, The main point of my sermon this morning is simple. It's this. To bring the blessings of his kingdom, Jesus suffered to save his people from their sins. It's essential. You can't have the crown without the cross. This morning, I want you to see that from Isaiah's passage, and I want you to know how you can share in these kingdom blessings. So let's look here at Isaiah 52 and 53. If you're unfamiliar with Isaiah, Isaiah is full of hope. He was a prophet who lived in Jerusalem in the 8th and 7th century B.C.s. And he ministered in a time of great political upheaval. Lots of kingdoms were on the ascendancy, and little old Judah thought their days were numbered. But God spoke through Isaiah, and he gave his people a language of hope. He says, comfort my people. It's beautiful. Some people call Isaiah the fifth gospel because it's just full of promises of who the Messiah is going to be. These ancient people of God looked to Isaiah to fuel their hope in a Messiah and to fuel their prayers. The passage we read identifies an individual, the servant of the Lord, who's going to come and fulfill all the responsibilities that Israel had failed in. Where they had proved faithless, he was going to prove faithful. Where they'd been disobedient, he was going to be completely obedient. And in doing so, he was going to secure redemption for his people and extend God's kingdom blessings to the end of the earth. Isaiah has four of these songs. They call them servant songs. And he talks about this servant of the Lord over and over and over. And Isaiah 52 and 53 has got to be one of the greatest passages in all the Old Testament. It's Isaiah's fourth servant song, and it brings into crystal clear focus who this suffering servant is going to be. I mean, beginning in Isaiah 52, 13 that we just read, Isaiah starts to get this picture. It's like a freeze frame out of a movie. And he sees this man. And then he hears God's interpretation of this man, who he is and what he's going to accomplish. And first off, God tells him that he's going to prosper. God gives an unchanging promise about this servant. He says, behold, my servant will prosper. My servant will be successful in the mission that I give him. God follows that up with a threefold promise of glory. He says he'll be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. There's glory coming for this servant, but it's coming in an unexpected way. Because in verse 14, he says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man. When Isaiah gets this vision, this freeze frame of this servant, he sees a man destined for a crown, destined for glory. But he sees him achieving it and attaining it through incredibly deep suffering. In fact, Isaiah says that he comes not just with an unchanging promise, but 
in an unexpected position. While Isaiah sees the future exaltation and glory of God's servant, he says he's also, in verse 3, a man of sorrow and one acquainted with grief. You'd think a person bound for glory, a prince gearing up to reign, would be full of anticipation and joy. We think of these coronations we see in world history or in movies as this incredible joyous occasion when a person takes their rightful place. But the servant that Isaiah sees is going to take his place by first taking this unexpected position. He, he saw this threefold glory, and now he gives us three levels of unexpected origins. He says in verse 2, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Isaiah tells us that if you took a look at him from your own perspective, he would be as out of place as a beautiful plant growing in a desert. And we've been struggling with rain here lately ourselves. And it's amazing. I look at our yard and just think, wow, praise God for wells and sprinkler systems to keep our grass green. But it's amazing how dry things are. And when you get a glimpse of mesquite trees in bloom with bright green, it, it brings to life something special. And Isaiah sees the servant, and he says he's going to be like a, a root springing up out of the most unexpected place, at a dry ground. The, the least likely environment is where this man's going to come from. And not only that, but he's not going to have a stately form or majesty that when you look upon him, his appearance would give you the indication that he's somebody impressive or important. His appearance is appalling, in fact. Isaiah sees this servant, and unlike Saul, who was Israel's first king, who was a handsome man, tall and dark, stood head and shoulders above all the other men of Israel, and had the look of a king. This servant's going to be something else entirely. He's not going to be robed in the luxuries of David or a purple robe like Solomon. Even Solomon, arrayed in all his beauty, wasn't dressed like one of these. Like He must have been beautiful in his luxurious garments. But this man's totally unimpressive. More like a homeless person or the victim of terrible violence. Somebody that you turn your face away from so that you don't subject yourself to that kind of thing. Not only that, his life is unappealing. In verse 3, he says he's despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces. In other words, this servant's bound for glory, but if you looked at him, you'd never know it. He didn't have dashingly good looks, not enormous wealth, not some great family pedigree and ancestry that he could point to. Instead, he's going to be known by the griefs he carried, and his sorrows and suffering. His reputation is going to be the insults that followed him everywhere he went and the physical beatings that defined his life. I mean, you look at this guy from any perspective, and you'd say he is totally unimpressive and unimportant. I wonder when you think about Jesus, what do you think? You think about his own life and the people who came to him. You think about maybe his disciples. When one tells them, hey, we think we've found the Messiah. Where's he? And the other one asks, where's he from? They say, Nazareth. He says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Nazareth's a desert if you're looking to grow messianic hope. Think about the people in his hometown. 
when he rolls in, preachers in the synagogue, they say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Isn't this James and Simon and Joseph, his brother, and aren't his sisters here with us? Where did this man get these things? Who does he think he is? It took offense at him. And of course, later on the cross, when his sorrows, man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, when his griefs are at their deepest, the people who are witnessing him die. Say, he saved others. Can he save himself? Oh, he's the king of Israel? Then let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants to. After all, he said, I'm the son of God. It's clear that Isaiah's vision, seen 700 years before Jesus' birth, perfectly fulfilled in his life. People looked at Jesus and discounted him, said he's possessed by a demon, said he's a son of a carpenter, he's totally insignificant from a backwater place called Nazareth. Nothing good can come from there. This man is not the man you think he is. Isaiah perfectly captures it. We esteemed him not. And maybe you're like him. I certainly was. There was a time in my life where I thought about Jesus, and I knew all the facts about him. I knew that he was the Son of God, that he taught a lot of great things, that he died on a cross and been resurrected. But y'all know he lived a long time ago, over 2,000 years, in a culture and place about as different from ours as the moon. What, what could he have to say to me? I esteemed him not. If you're here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian, I wonder, how do you esteem him? Are you unimpressed by him? Not even worth listening to a 30-minute sermon over? Find something instead to do on your phone? Like one of these kids in the front rows falling asleep? We esteemed him not. Take a look at Jesus from your own perspective, and that's Sure to be what you see. He came from an unexpected position, lived an unimpressive life from the world standards. But Isaiah knew, my servant will prosper. He was bound for glory, but he is going to suffer first. Isaiah talks about this suffering. He says it's an undeserved punishment. It's an undeserved punishment. He continues in Isaiah 53, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. And yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. I love this one. Isaiah 53, 6. Please memorize this verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah saw in his freeze frame that this man coming in an unimpressive and unexplainable position was going to suffer. The people were going to see him suffering, and they were going to think to themselves, it's good. This man is finally getting what he deserves. He says, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. The people who saw Jesus on the cross didn't think to themselves, oh, wow, maybe he's suffering for somebody else. They thought he was getting what everybody who claimed to be God and therefore was a blasphemer deserved. God was carrying out his justice on him. But instead, 
Isaiah says, surely he took up our pain. It's an undeserved punishment. One commentator says, Isaiah uses this word, surely, to express the unexplainable and unexpected. Whatever people may have thought about the sorrows and sufferings they saw, the truth was dramatically different. The servant wasn't suffering for his sins. He was suffering for someone else's. He wasn't getting what he deserved. He was getting what we deserved. That's what Isaiah sees. This is an undeserved punishment being carried out on him. Isaiah 53.6 is the language of substitution. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Substitution. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In other words, this servant wasn't just suffering vicariously or as an example, but he was standing in the place of another, suffering the punishment that they deserve. It's like the songwriters put it in Come Behold a Wondrous Mystery. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb on Calvary. Is that how it goes? Yeah. In the stead of ruined sinners. Sinners. The, the Lord chose to lay on this servant no sin that he'd committed, but the sins of somebody else, of all who would ever trust in him. Later in this song, Isaiah says in verse 10 that the servant offered himself up as a sin offering or a guilt offering. This comes from Leviticus 4 and 5, where God gives his people the elaborate rituals under which a person's sin and guilt could be taken away. You can go back and read Leviticus 4 and 5 this afternoon. makes light afternoon reading in between the commercials of the masters. Just thumb through it and you'll be all right. No, but honestly, you ought to take a look at it. It's, it's elaborate. It offers varying degrees of sacrifice depending on your position in the community. And so if you were a priest and committed a sin that brought guilt on all the people, you had to offer a bull. But if you were what Leviticus calls a common person, and you'd committed a sin against God, all you had to do was bring a goat. And so you imagine you're one of these common people, and you've committed sin against God by disobeying his commands. You'd take one of your goats, you'd been raising for food, and you'd take it down to the temple or the tabernacle, and you'd offer it to the priest. The priest would say, what, what are you here to do? He'd say, I'm here to confess my sin before the Lord and to receive atonement, to receive forgiveness for my sin. He'd lead you to place your hand on the goat's head as a symbol of you transferring your guilt to that goat. And then he'd take it and slit its neck and drain its blood, quarter it out and lay it on the altar, and burn it as a sacrifice to God. Then he'd bring some of its blood, he'd rub it on your ear, and he'd pronounce that you were forgiven and clean. When the servant shows up, presents himself to the Lord. He does so not announcing his own sin, not confessing any guilt that he shares, but he stands there in the place of somebody else. And he doesn't drag a goat down a dusty road. Instead, he offers himself. He says, I'm the offering. I'm the one. And in God's wisdom and in his love, God took up all the sins of everybody who'd ever trust in Christ and he placed them on that servant so that when he offered himself willingly on the cross, he made full atonement for sins. Removing our guilt, he expiated 
our sins. And he propitiated the wrath of God by removing it from us so that anybody who's covered in the blood of the Lamb no longer stands under the guilt and condemnation of God, but is set free and justified, declared righteous in his sight. Y'all better watch out. I'm about to preach. (laughs) But isn't it obvious that that's Jesus from this passage? I mean, you think about the servant being pierced. Don't you think of the spear thrust in his side so that water and blood gushes out? When you hear he was crushed, don't you see his body suffering under the weight of a cross as he carried it to Calvary? When you see his grief and sorrow, don't you hear him cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you hear of his stripes, don't you think of the flogging he received from Roman centurions? I mean, this passage takes up every hope and longing and shows us how Jesus fulfilled it all. In fact, the authors of the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw that clearly. There's six times in the New Testament where Isaiah 52, 53 is quoted verbatim, sections of it, And it's alluded to more than a dozen times. The earliest Christians go back through their Bibles and try to figure out how it was that the Messiah suffered. And this is a passage God leads them to. It's why Peter could say that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. It's why Paul could say God demonstrates his own love for us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's why he could say in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's why John could say that God showed his love for us by offering his own son as a propitiating sacrifice for sins. This is Jesus Christ, the one who suffered punishment that he didn't deserve, one who came and announced his own coming in this way. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is his message this morning that God, God's people, you need to get this in your heart. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, you need to think long and hard about it. God brought you here today so that you could be either reminded of this truth, that every sin you've ever committed, every careless thought you've ever had, everything you've done in the quiet and stillness and dark of a locked bedroom door, all of it has been placed on this servant so that he could suffer for you. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Somebody's got to die. Either you'll stand before the Lord and give an account of your life and be sent away to everlasting judgment, or you'll allow the suffering servant to offer himself as a guilt offering in your place. You'll trust him. You'll take hold of him, asking him to forgive, asking him to cover your sins and to promise, give you the promised blessings of his kingdom. Forgiveness reconciliation with God, abundant life both now and forever. Listen, if you've never received that forgiveness, there would be no better day to do it than today. In fact, all you got is today. And church, we need to rediscover this truth. How easy it is to think that the cross is the entryway to the Christian life, and then we kind of grow up beyond that, you know? We get into the deeper stuff, like the real stuff of the Christian life. But, oh, we need to remember the blood of Jesus every day. Every day. What for sin can atone? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. No new leaves. You know, hey, tomorrow I'm going to do better. Today I messed up big time, lost my cool, my kids and wife. Tomorrow I'm going to be different. 
You can't be best. You can't be your best. Do good enough. You can't turn over a leaf and be better. You have to be forgiven. You have to have your sins atoned for. The world needs to hear it from our lips over and over and over. We're convinced. We're convinced that one's died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but they'd live for him who for their sake died and was raised again. To see the death of Jesus, the undeserved punishment of God's suffering servant as the defining point of our lives, that I'm living for Jesus because he died for me. When we live that way, then he receives all the glory and praise from our life, just like Isaiah said he would. Look with me one last time at Isaiah 53 and verse 11. God says that, are you there? Okay, if I'm doing my job right, you're not going to understand what I'm about to say if you don't look along here with me. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he'll see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he'll bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. See, Isaiah saw from the beginning, my servant will prosper. He's going to be high and lifted up and exalted. He's going to do it by taking on an unexpected position and suffering and undeserved punishment. But that's going to lead right into the unrivaled praise. Because the result of the servant's suffering isn't just that God's people receive kingdom blessings promised long ago and finally fulfilled in him. But he also receives glory from God. He receives the reward of his suffering. That reward includes the light of life, the resurrection, and a portion among the great. This is how the suffering servant takes on the unexpected position and then comes to receive unrivaled praise. How Jesus goes from hanging on a cross on Friday to 40 days later walking into heaven to receive a crown of glory from the Father. The suffering seems to put his life to an end, and yet three days later he arises to take with him all the transgressors he saves and sprinkles. These promises are littered throughout the Old Testament. 16, David saw it. He says, My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you won't abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Jesus hanging on the cross knows he's there for you and me. And he knows that his father's plan will not fail. That if he offers himself freely, that God is going to reward him. He won't abandon his soul to hell. He won't let his body rot in the grave. That God will be faithful to his promise to raise him up again. And that's exactly what he does. The servant offered himself because he trusted that God would raise him up. And Paul says in Philippians 2 that he received a name from him that's above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, church, if we want to understand Palm Sunday and Easter, if we want to be able to have a good answer to our friends about the cross and the crown, if we want to understand how it is that
Jesus' suffering leads straight into his glory, then you've got to see that to bring the blessings of his kingdom, Jesus suffered to save his people from their sins. And so I wonder as we close this morning, if you'd bow your head with me, and let's think back to something we just said. This morning, I wonder how you think about Jesus. Do you recognize him as God's suffering servant sent to live a sinless life, a life that you should have lived, and to die in your place suffering the punishment you deserve? Listen, if not, you can experience that. You can know his kingdom blessings now. The Bible says that you were created by a God who loves you far more than you could imagine. He created you in his image and gave you a unique purpose so that you'd bring him glory and praise with your life. But just like the first people and every person who's lived since, you and I have gone astray like sheep. We've turned every last one of us to our own way. Because of that, the Bible says that you and I stand under the condemnation of God. We're disobedient rebels, and he's going to hand out judgment. The Bible also says, as we've seen this morning, that God didn't stop loving us when we rebelled against him, but he loved us so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. That he demonstrates his love in this way, that while we were yet sinners, he sent Jesus to be the suffering servant who came from an unexpected place and suffered punishment he didn't deserve. Because of that death, he extends the invitation and promise that all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. These kingdom blessings we're talking about are simple. The removal of guilt for sin reconciliation with God so that you're no longer a rebel but you're a child the gift of his spirit who comes to live within you and helps you to live a life that's pleasing to him a future and a hope stored up for you in heaven through the resurrection of Jesus so that you know that the abundant life you experience now is yours forever in him have you ever come to a place where you've acknowledged Jesus to be who he says he is reached out and asked for forgiveness from him and been saved. If not, perhaps today is the day you can do that. Maybe you need to pray a prayer. Jesus, I admit that I've sinned to you, disobeyed your commands, but I believe you came to suffer in my place. Please forgive me and help me to follow you. Maybe you'd like to talk to somebody, and if so, we got people who'd love to walk you through what it means to give your life to Christ, to receive forgiveness of sins and to walk in his ways. No wonder, church, church family, are you continuing to trust in Jesus' sacrifice for you or are you spinning your gears trying to earn God's approval? As we go through this holy week, look forward to Easter. I challenge you to reacquaint yourself with the Jesus of the Bible, the one who was humble, 
rode into Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey who stooped down with his disciples to wash their feet, who extended bread to his betrayer, and who willingly offered himself up to the Father in your place. Let's enter this Easter week loving and worshiping King. You pray with me.